two things you need to know before you listen to today's episode. Well, I suppose two things you you are technically listening to the episode now, so it's too late. Two things you should have known. Right? I'm not saying you should have. I mean, that sounds a bit like I'm scolding you. Like you should have. If you weren't so fucking blasé, you would have known these things. I mean, there's no. Well, at least one of them. The only place the information is contained is within this introduction, or it will be eventually. And so, there's no way you could have known. Ah, uh, but then again, this is an introduction. This isn't the episode proper. So I suppose, though strictly speaking, you should. I mean, you don't need to know it at all. It doesn't matter. Look, what anyway? What I'm getting the point is. Hello, I'm Tim. You know that. Uh, this is Death of a Thousand Cuts, and today I chat to the author Tade Thompson, uh, mainly about his novel. His, uh, I guess, science fiction. Although it's got like lots of weird. It's one of those wonderful things that novels that kind of crosses, that crosses genre boundaries and just tickles all the boundaries until they uh, start giggling and and drop their guard and then runs merrily across the borderlands between science fiction and fantasy and all points in between. So anyway, we, we talk about his novel Rosewater and we just talk about writing in general. So that's that's one, you didn't really need to know that. You need one, it would be just useful to know that I chat to him but you don't really need to know. Those those other bits that's just made me craft me sort of backing up. Anyway, I was really excited to talk to him. We've been trying to set this up for a while. The, the the key thing I think you need to know beforehand. I feel like I need to appraise you of is that uh, we had some limitations with what we could do with the audio, which meant that I ended up recording all the sound on my end, uh, which means that his voice is. Uh, little bit you know the sound quality isn't quite as good as i would normally uh, like it to be so I'd, my apologies especially to those of you who are hard of hearing because uh you know it will the sound quality is i'm sorry if that kind of infect, affects your enjoyment uh i've listened to it, it through though i've bumped up the volume and um, i think most of the time it's just gonna be like having a, a phone chat with someone and uh, I really, really, I did really enjoy talking to him. Another thing, I, th- I feel like I want to just flag up for those of you who aren't sort of like uh, deep in the uh, in the genre world or the nerd world is that like early in the conversation, we do start to go into chatting briefly about video games and and kind of like game design. We don't get just. Just so in case the moment that comes up, you lose the will to live and switch off. And I know some of you for whom that's really interesting. Um, we don't we don't go into it very long. So if you start feeling, especially if you start feeling lost, I know you're not, it's not that you're sort of being mean about it. You just might hear a start, you know, mention of the Unreal Engine and go, I, I don't think this episode is going to be for me. We very quickly get back into writing. And actually, it's a really, really good grounding in you know some of his interest in in world building in literal world building so i hope you find that all very interesting of course uh, i'm not going to keep you any longer uh, here's me chatting to tade thompson hello and welcome to death of a thousand cuts making you an awesome writer one cut at a time my name's tim clare and this is a show writers and also people who read about writing and stories and just making books and this very silly very wonderful thing we do uh because well I don't know why we did it because at some point we decided it was a good idea and lacked the imagination to change our minds and today 
I am chatting because it's not always just me on this show. It's really good to get other writers, probably more intelligent writers, who can give you different perspectives on the writing process. Uh, And today um, I am really genuinely thrilled to be uh, speaking to Tade Thompson uh, and chatting hopefully about his book, his new book, uh, Rosewater. Hey, how are you? Hi, Tim. Uh, How's it How's it, how's it going? Thank you so much for like we finally managed to um, find a time we can both chat. Uh, I want to sort of start at the, I guess I guess at the beginning, um, and just ask you a little bit about how you got here, how you got to the stage of being a writer. Like, how was the? I guess I'm like looking for your like supervillain origin story, but like. <laughs> How did how did you how did you go from being just a everyday guy to becoming to realizing that writing was something you wanted to do? All right. To be perfectly honest, I've kind of written since I was a child. Um, it's it's not one of those things where I didn't I didn't know what a writer was. So it's not one of those things where oh I've always wanted to be a writer. It wasn't like that. It was more like um, as soon as I was exposed to comics comics were the first thing I was you know first kind of writing apart from stories that were told to me by my mother but comics were the first narratives that I was exposed to that I could look at or read by myself as soon as I was exposed to that it didn't even it didn't occur to me not to create my own immediately like my very first instinct was to start drawing my own comics um, which I did from when I was about five or six you know I'm not speaking to the quality but this is what I this is what I started doing almost immediately. Um, when I was in in primary school in Wimbledon, my we had a school teacher at the time who was thinking back on it a bit of a hippie, and she would really get pretty much every day or every other day. Of course, this is many many years ago, but pretty much every day she would give me a massive blank sheet of paper, online paper. And she would draw a line across the middle and say, okay, you can draw a picture on top and then write the story on the lower part. Wow. So, which I used to do every other day. So I had you know, tons of these different stories. And it could be about whatever the hell I wanted to write. He didn't really care what it was about. So it gave me that freedom to just let my imagination go wild and everything. And she was very enthusiastic and all that. It was good. Um, it, was good it was good encouragement. Because what it meant is that throughout my childhood... I was creating stories. I'm not going to say they were good stories, but you know how it is with writing. You have to get the bad stuff out. You know, you have to get the mediocre and bad stuff out. You have to learn, you know, bits and pieces and learn what works and what doesn't. You know, so I was reading and I was writing and I was drawing and I was reading and I was writing and I was drawing. And it, there's never really been a time, except for a dark period, I think in 2009, where I hadn't, in writing that's yeah that's amazing that's so there's so many writers i've spoken to actually have got some kind of like mentor figure in their in their life right which is another which is another like comics trope right like that's normally like the good guy (laughs) but like this sensei who turns up and whether you realize it or not starts like putting you through the moves and it sounds like she was that for you 
well, she was. The, 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 the smooth thing about it is I didn't realize that was what was happening, you see. This is a thing that I could only understand in retrospect. After, you know, I was long gone from there and I no longer remembered her name or anything. But I do remember what she did because it had such an impact on, on certain aspects of my life. For example, a kind of, I was being groomed for a kind of discipline that I didn't understand. So I was basically drawing and writing every day, which is good discipline for writing every day. But I didn't know any of that. I didn't know that that would be the result of what she was doing. Can you can you remember any um, comics that made a big impact on you? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I still remember the very first comic I ever read, which was the Fantastic Four. Um, particularly, I liked I liked the Human Torch. You know, I'm talking about from my childhood now. Um, I mean, we could go through the ages and talk about what, you know, what comics kind of influenced me through the ages. So we can go all the way from that Fantastic Four comic written um, written by Stanley and drawn by um, Jack Kirby, all the way through to From Hell by Alan Moore and Ben Campbell. You uh, see, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was what what was what was it about that? You said you like really liked the Human Torch. What was it that you were particularly what was it that like was really drawing you to uh, to him, and what was it that made you think like, wow? Well, the colours for one thing. I mean, I think Human Torch is one of the most colourful. I mean, it's got the red and the yellow um, when he's flaming, so to speak. Um, so the colours really attracted me to the comic book itself. Um, and in fact, at the time, apparently, my mum says I wasn't interested in reading at all, and we were we took a walk. Through the, through the Middle Common, and there was a, at the time they used to have, I don't know if they still have fairs in Middle Common, but then they did. So we went to the fair, and then there was this a magazine rack, and there was there was I just saw the Human Torch there. I didn't know that was what he was at the time, but I just saw it. I was like, okay, well, what's this? So she bought it and everything because oh, finally he's interested in something in print, and so I said, okay, she should read it to me. She said, no, she's not going to read it to me. That I have to learn how to read so that I can read it myself, and that's why that's how and why i started learning how to read but at the same time i started learning how to draw as well so i think the thing with me with comics is i like art i like drawing i like sketching and i like stories so comics are like a natural medium for me i just i think like it's so funny how like what you have to have to start off with is just something that you kind of really love and it almost doesn't matter it's just the fact that you're turning up and that you love it Yes, and, and, I, and that's exactly it. And like I said, it didn't occur to me not... As, as soon as I finished, I was like, well, I don't have any more comics to read. I better write some and draw some so that I can have something to read. You know, that was the... In my child mind, that's what was occurring to me. Well, oh, I have to wait a whole week for the next episode. No, I'm going to draw some stuff so that I have some stuff to tide me over till, you know, till the new comics arrive. And look, in England at the time, comics never arrived early. You didn't... You know, you didn't... You had these magazines that were made by they were licensed marvel properties and everything but you know they were squashed together and they're never reliable so you never knew whether something was going to arrive or not so the only thing i had that was reliable was my own work so i made it reliable (sighs) that's so that's you know i had a really similar experience but with um i was like a real like like video games nerd when i was a kid but didn't like my family we didn't have like a nintendo or 
didn't have a computer, didn't have anything for me to actually play the games on. I just knew that they looked amazing. And so I yeah. used to like draw my own like Super Mario Brothers levels and stuff. <laughs> Just like like you. I mean, it's like, at least yours were in the same medium. Mine, you couldn't play them. They were just like designs for levels. But it was that feeling of like, I want this thing. Oh, I'll just sort of make it for myself. You're lucky. I mean, when I was a kid, we, we had we had to go to arcades to play games. It wasn't, you know, you didn't just, you just really didn't have them at home. Then you had Pong. Um, and then there was, you know, with Pong, you know, you, it was rather simplistic and everything. And, you know, I did... I did feel the attraction of, you know, of creating my own computer games, but I didn't have the tools at the time. I mean, when finally we got some tools that were shipped with, say, Unreal Tournament, when that first came out, are you, you, you know Unreal Tournament? Um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I do. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm more of a, um, I'm more of like an adventure game nerd than. Uh, FPS, but um, I I, yeah, I but, certainly know it. Yeah, yeah. But the the important thing is you don't, you don't have to know about the mechanics of the game itself. But the important thing is that with the original Unreal Tournament, they shipped a level creating. Oh, I'm calling it that. They, they shipped a level creating um, program with the original CD, so you could create your own levels. And you know, for a few. I think for about two or three years in the 90s, I did a lot of mods. I created a lot of mods, I, I you know, because I wanted to create my own levels, um, which I did. And then there was Half-Life, there was Counter-Strike. I don't know if you, you, you've heard of, have you heard of Counter-Strike? Yeah, I've played Counter-Strike. Yeah, we used to set up like little um, mini LAN arenas in my, in my house. Like, uh, okay, so we'd like three of us playing with bots, yeah. Okay, excellent. So what? So basically, we used to um, in I think about two thousand and one, two thousand and two, we used to play lots of you know me and some friends used to play lots of um, Counter Strike. But then you know there was the ability to also create levels with that. So you know I used to create those levels as well. Just that it became rather time consuming. It's time consuming to create a level. I mean, you have to pretty much program everything. You have to. I don't know how much of this you've ever done, but. 3D gaming and the like, you have to you have to consider the whole world like a solid block, and then you subtract what you don't want from it, as opposed to just an empty void that you add things to. It's it's absolutely the like games used to be able to be created by sort of one person in like a couple of days. I suppose they still are with indie games, but like the level, like if you're creating a whole 3D world, that's a lot of work, right? It is a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> And then you, you know, so to to concentrate on you know to create a whole world and then also think about the story that is just it's just a lot of work. It's it's, it's just too much work. And if you can, I mean, I don't know. I have I have some kind of I have a philosophy where look, if you're creating something and it can't be competitive, then you just have a hobby. This is like this is so this is you know what this is so interesting to me because. It is making me reconsider some scenes I've read in Rosewater through <laughs> the medium of level design. Like, because you have these, I'm, I'm thinking about like the, um, and I'll, I'll sort of, I'll sort of uh, pause it in a second to let you sort of introduce what the book's about for people so we don't leave them completely behind. Uh, but I'm thinking about kind of like some of the scenes, like the, like the bit with like, 
Ryan Miller and stuff like that, where you've got actually these really, really detailed, gnarly mindscapes. Um, and, and, and seeing that in terms of like level design and sort of, you know, I guess Second Life was like the early earliest version of that. But like yes, the, the, these complete like imagination scapes that are like weird and freaky and sometimes scary and kind of glitch out uh, where you're bumping into all these other people. Now it that's complete. I go, oh, <laughs> all right. It all started with this kind of like interest in the visual, in comics, with creating worlds. And yeah, with like level designs where you can kind of wander around in this empty world that at some stage you're going to populate with loads of random people. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, I, I was always a fan of the kind of levels that are fully explorable, fully interactive. So maybe nobody will ever go there, but maybe they will. So and, li- little secrets. And- yeah, essentially, it's my, it's my, screw you to all the people who said the games are going to rock my brain. Screw you all. <laughs> can, can you, um, for, um, can you give, like, uh, a little idea of, like, what, uh, your novel, uh, Rosewater is about? I know that's a big question. You can interpret it however you want. So, Rosewater is, Rosewater is, is, it's an alien innovation story, um, but it creeps up on you. You don't know that you're dealing with an alien innovation when you start, um, because what I've chosen to do is to follow the life of one character, Caro, and use that character, one, to show you the world you're living in, and two, to show you what has actually happened. And so, as you read the book, you slowly become aware that this is not the world we're in, and that something really strange has happened, and something that may turn out to be actually quite dark and and strange and so that's what that's that's what rosewater is is about in a nutshell yeah you've got like um it's it starts off in the i guess nearish future uh and but then you sort of kind of shifts through time you have these kind of like chapters of uh now which is in the kind of like a, a near future and and then kind of jumping back to kind of fill in some of the gaps. Can you talk a little bit about kind of that process of like following a main narrative, but also yeah. uh, having these, I guess that it's weird to call them flashbacks because they're still in the future quite a long way, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think, so one of the things I try to look at is how, People tell stories, you know, how we tell stories to ourselves um, in everyday in everyday life, not not how professional storytellers like novelists or short story writers tell stories, but how everybody tells stories. So like, oh, you wouldn't believe what happened to me when we went to the mall today. Right. What I noticed about people telling stories is that there is a lot of back and forth. So you start telling stories. So, so, okay, I went to the mall today, right? And I saw this guy who completely had his feet cut off, but he was walking on the two stumps instead of walking on a chair. It was so strange. And then detour, immediate detour happens. You know how people who normally, you know, when people have lost their, lost a limb, they're either on a chair on crutches. 
and you say yes, and then you say, you know, like X, Y, Z, people that we know who have lost a limb. Yeah. You know, like my uncle who lost his leg to diabetes. Then you jump back to being in the mall and you say, this guy was totally doing blah, 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 blah. And everybody was crowding around him. It's just like the same time 10 years ago when this happened, you know, people jump back and forth. Yeah. When they tell stories. That's that. It seems to be, to me, it seems to be the natural way that people tell stories. Now, books are abnormal because we write we write a narrative and it's all fixed in print and bounded by the covers of the book and that's a, it's a technology right but it isn't usually the way we normally you know we've trained ourselves to read novel to read novels and short stories and poems and the like it's a it's a skill that we've trained ourselves to do so we can read something from the beginning of a story to the end we can have a consecutive you know, events that are happening one after the other and so on. But one of the natural ways for us to tell stories is to jump back and forth, to stop and define terms so that we know that the person who is listening to us has a shared understanding of what we're talking about. And then we continue and then we stop and then we revise some history that we both know to be sure that, again, to ensure that we're both talking about the same things. And that's how the story kind of goes. And it it goes in a kind of circular, circular, circular fashion, even though you are moving from point A, which is not knowing about the event, to point B, which is knowing about the event. But you don't move straight straight from A to B. You're moving in circles and circles and circles. and and, And that circle is slowly shifting from A to B. Whereas, you know... The circle itself, the circumference of it, will be radiating outwards as far as you can without losing the straight line from A to B. That's you know? such so a good explanation, that, yeah. Yeah, so that's what I was trying to duplicate. You know, that, that was what I was trying to duplicate. Um, and I, I wasn't doing it for any kind of lofty literary reason. It was more like I'm just a person who gets bored easily so i don't want to just tell you that a happened and then b happened and then c happened and then we went all the way to z i like jumping back and forth because i can therefore choose to jump to the things that are interesting at the same time you in your mind will fill in the gaps of the boring things that were about to happen and that means i don't have to write the boring things which is fine for me and you're not going to penalize me for not writing the boring things because i've written about something else and that way it keeps it keeps the momentum of the narrative going. And it, it, it's because that's the thing, like w- writing any piece of science fiction, there's just going to be context that like l- literally no human in the world coming to the book is going to have because you've made it up. Right. So you you, yes. you have to have something that gives that. And like we, but you also try and start the book in a really interesting place, right, where there's your protagonist who is basically a psychic hired by a bank to defend the customers against other psychics who might steal people's details, right? Yes. So Um, The the idea is to ground... So um, Haruki Murakami, he said something in, um, in 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 his book IQ84. He said that when you're writing anything fantastical, when you're writing anything that is not your basic mimetic fiction that you have to 
ground it in. You have to all the rest of the details have to be very have to be super mundane. Because what you want to do is to ground the reader in a in in a reality they understand as much as possible. Then introduce the strange elements, and that makes it easier for them to accept the strange elements. So, I reckon you're reading. One thing everybody can relate to is a bank, yeah, and details and identity. So. Let's start with something everybody knows and is worried about, i.e. someone going to empty my bank account. And then let's push that into the strange realm. And, and like, and it gets like, it does get like intensely strange. But like the weird thing is, by the time you've got like a, you're a character <coughs> morphing into a, uh, a griffin and flying through space with kind of like weird disembodied corpses and infinity signs and having psychic battles. Um, I kind of felt like I understood all that. I mean, now you know, saying it out loud, out of context, people would be like, whoa, but actually you're reading it. And I'm like, not only does this, do I understand what's going on? But this feels like a logical progression of what you've talked about. And of course, because you give reasons for it as well. Um, yeah. I'm like, okay, cool. I understand this. Like, this is, it makes sense. And actually it's got an intuitive dream logic to it that actually, it feels, makes immediate sense to me in the way like some dreams just make sense, you know? Yes. A dream will, a dream will always make sense. Um, when, when you're in it. It's only when you wake up that it seems... In fact, when you're about to wake up is when it starts to seem strange to you. You know, um, I think that the the grounded parts of a narrative are what makes it possible for the reader to believe the non-grounded parts of it. So if I open a book saying, oh, there was this griffin that he was flying around and then he met this naked fairy woman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know that would be that would be kind of ridiculous i mean it sounds awesome when you say it like that it does sound awesome but i know what you mean <laughs> yeah but i mean it sounds awesome in the sense that okay there's certain there's a subset of people who will take that and love that immediately but it would turn some other people off immediately like i don't want to read about fairies and, and griffins what the hell are you writing man you know nobody you know it, it would there would be a subset of people who want to read that story but general you know general readers who are not really into science fiction will be like what the hell is this nonsense and really what you want is you know a story that look it's not necessarily only for science fiction fans you want a book that anybody can read and one thing i always say is that you know science fiction isn't for science fiction fans it's for everybody it's not for people who like a particular aesthetic you know it should be written in such a way that in the way that we all think of 1984, for example, it's it's a book not for science fiction people. It's a book for everybody. And that's, I think, to me, the best kind of science fiction should be readable by anybody who likes reading. You know, and that's kind of what I had in mind. So if you don't have bits in your book that that any reader can relate to, then I think that it's it's a problem with the narrative because the whole idea of passing ideas along is it fails if, if 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 just about anybody can't just pick it up and read it and pick something out from it i yeah i my friend uh the the poet ross sutherland who was on the show two weeks ago 
talks yeah. about, he sort of said, when he's talking about being funny, he said, yeah. talking about how that he, th- he, he thinks comedy is a strategy, not a genre. And it sounds like you're saying that a little bit about like fantastic elements and science fiction that almost like science fiction is a form of it's like a style you can go towards. It's it's a it can re- represent content, but it's not a genre in itself. Like what we're actually looking at is stories, some of which may happen to be set in the future or have weird stuff in them. Well, yeah, I mean, look, this kind of probably goes back to the first our first ability to tell stories anyway. You know, we pro- you know we we had we must have had fantastical elements while telling stories around the campfire. You know, um, and the, the purpose wasn't the fantastical elements because even though they were entertaining, storytelling has probably been one of our ways of passing information on to through the entire tribe and through generations. You know, inside stories are encoded certain wisdoms. And certain lessons that we want to pass on, that we want to endure, which is why certain archetypes tend to endure in, in storytelling anyway. You know, so where we tend, we generally tend to have, we, we tend to have good guys and bad guys because we want to teach. Like, look, it's not a good idea being a bad guy. We want, we want that lesson to be learned one way or the other. But we don't want to say, look, be good, don't be bad, because that's not interesting. What's interesting is, right, let's tell you this whole fantastic story where the lesson is try to be a good guy. You know, in other words, a lot of our stories are just telling us, look, don't be a dick. <laughs> you know, that's what a lot of our stories are telling us. Um, if you, one of the things, ever since the invention of television, or even storytelling, right, one of the things, or let's say one of the types of stories that has always endured has been, you know, cop shows, cops and robbers. Right, one way or the other. Look at how long something like Law and Order persists. You know, it's persisted um, because we want the message to get through to the people in society that crime does not pay. That if you commit a crime, we will find you and we will punish you. So, at any given time in history, there's always some successful cop show since the invention of television. And since, you know, since we started writing detective stories, because there had to be that part of fiction that tells us if you transgress, we will find you and punish you. Now, it isn't, you know, if you if you, if all your knowledge of crime comes from shows, then what you won't realize is that a lot of people just get away with murder all the time. That people get away with murders are left unsolved all the time. All right. But if you watch cop shows, you wouldn't think that. You know, um, you would think, for example, that things like DNA analysis is a great science, or that spatter pattern analysis is a great science, and it will it can be reliably used to detect who did what during a crime. Whereas DNA science, as we found, you know, from recent scandals, isn't exactly what we thought it was. You know, and um, that closeness between, say, the police department and the labs means that the, poli- the the labs sometimes do things that the police department require of them. In other words, the police say this person is guilty. You know, we know this person is guilty. We need the DNA to match. Blah 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 blah. Things like that. You know? So um, these you know these things go out. They're interesting, but the main reason they go out is to teach society. Look, 
don't do things or we will come and get you so if you if those if those shows have got this kind of like societal purpose of kind of i guess like moral instruction but also i guess that there's something comforting to some people about going uh, basically you watching this you're good guys and there's this whole subset of people who are going to protect you and keep society stable then yes. when when you are writing rosewater like what do you think for you I I I mean I don't exactly mean a a, a message, but uh, yeah. you, what's your what's your kind of like role in that kind of like uh, contrib contributing to the to the story when you're around the campfire, right? What what is yes. your what do you want your story to be, the listeners to be experiencing and and learning from it? Okay, so the first the first things first, just go back a little bit. I'm I, I'm not saying that this is a thing that the producers of those shows will consciously be aware of. I'm saying that it's a kind of group effect over time, as opposed to a producer just waking up to say, I know, I'm going to write a show about cops and robbers that will help people realize that crime gets punished. That's yeah. not, you know, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the, the net effect of all of these shows over time is to be that, you know, is to reassure people that they're being protected and to, and to let bad guys know that, look, we have the tools to come and get you. So it's, uh, you know, I just wanted to, I wanted to point that out. Like it's not a, it's not an individual creator's vision to tell, you know, it, I mean, some might have that as a purpose, but it's not, you know, it's not something that a person may set out to do. It's a population effect. That's one. Now, back to your question um, about what it's meant to be. Really, when I started Rosewater, it was mostly about it was mostly a character study about about Kara, about the main character, and I wanted to know. You know, I, I I spent a lot of time reading declassified CIA documents. You know, things about their experience on mind control and the like. And I, in my mind, tried to think about, okay, how would if if there was anything like telepathy, how would it happen? And then I read a. I read a, a, a paper, a scientific paper, about um, conjoined twins who could hear each other's thoughts, you know, because they had a strip of neural tissue. They were joined at the head, and they had a strip of neural tissue between their two brains that passed thoughts through. So I thought about that, and I said, okay, fine. So what if you had this connective thing that connected to human beings, that connected human beings to each other, but they weren't aware of it? But that, that thoughts could pass through one to the other. And then I said, that, so I said, well, why would that exist? Who would create such a thing and for what purpose? And then I came to the aliens. Now, uh, it's like that meme, it was aliens all along. Hmm. Um, but, but then I started thinking because, okay, one of the, you know, and I kind of dipped slightly into craft here. One of the things about writing is this. I personally have never been able to write with a theme in mind. What I usually do is write it and then when I'm revising and trying to ask myself, what is this story actually about? So after I'd done a few drafts, I then started to ask myself, okay, like, what is this really about? And ultimately this Rosewater and the other Rosewater books, they're really about our relationship with aliens. And by aliens, I don't mean men from Mars or, or women from Venus. I mean our relationship with people who are not like us. 
what does it mean when people come to you with gifts, all right? Um, you know, so are they coming to us with, do they think we're cold and are they bringing us blankets or are they giving us smallpox infested fabric, for example? Um, what does it mean to us when we have a, when we have aliens? And for me, with a background from Nigeria, um, the British were the aliens. They came with superior technology and invaded our shores. Or rather, first of all, they didn't, they first of all, sent missionaries. You know, so after we'd been softened up by missionaries, softened up, you know, taught strengthened, you get, you know, the East, the West African, you know, the the East India Trading Company, the West African Trading Company, they turned up with guns and, you know, with Enfields and Maxims and the like, you know. And that was our exposure to aliens, to invasions and, and, and stuff, and how we reacted to that. And it's different from, from different perspectives, because if you are, for example, a colonizing force, then you are to the... To the local to the indigenous population you're the aliens but you may also have people coming to your country which are you know and that is also a form of alien invasion that you have to deal with as well because you've got different people who have different ways of doing things coming to you and you have to think about how you're going to deal with that how are you going to relate to that and that really is the subtext of of Rosewater, but it's also the subtext of any alien invasion narrative. If you think about it, it's it's it is the subtext. Like, okay, how do we relate to people who are not like us, who are massed in numbers? So it may be a spaceship armada that arrives, you know, and you end up defeating them by blind luck, using the common cold, or you may marshal your resources and. You know, fly off into space and nuke them from orbit because it's the only way to be sure. But <laughs> you still have to, you know, you have to. I mean, because they are always alien, alien invasion narratives or alien contact narratives are always about how you relate to people who are not like you. You know, it's like, you know, so I just made an allusion to aliens, and that was if you if you go and if you read about what James Cameron said, it was more about. You know, Americans and Vietnamese in, in the Vietnam War. Oh, yeah, exactly. 100%. I think that comes through in the movie. So when you think about it, it came out in like 1983 or something. I think that comes through yeah. really strongly. Yes. You know, and if, you know, even our, I think, I think it's okay to say that a War of the Worlds is the archetypal alien invasion narrative. And that was about British colonialism. You know, and I think many people who read War of the Worlds or watch any of the adaptations don't even think about it that way, but that was what was intended. You know, that was what was, that was what was intended. They realized that the aliens in War of the Worlds actually represented the British. The fact that the aliens were attacking, you know, were attacking Britain, kind of it pulled the wool over people's eyes. In actual fact, those aliens were represented by the English, and the common cold that killed the aliens, I actually thought it had to do with malaria more than anything else. But you know, ah. there you go. Oh, okay. I've just had a light bulb moment. I'm like, oh, holy shit. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that does make sense. Shit. Wow. And, and there are a lot of, you know, you can't, 
you can't write about aliens without your ideas of people who are different from you coming through in the narrative. You can't because that is your template for aliens. That is your template. That is the meaning of aliens. It's something that is so different. In fact, even if you think about other people who are, for example, mentally unwell, the word used to be alienation and psychiatrists used to be known as alienists. You know, wow. Because the idea is that people who have become mentally unwell have now become separate. They become so different that they're aliens. And also, I think, like, people, even if they don't realise what they're writing about, you know, I think you can, like you say, these things are, like, can be subconscious as well. You don't have to, like, you don't have to go into it uh, with an agenda, but you will discover through writing what your subconscious thoughts about these things are. And not all of them may be entirely flattering, you know? Like, you may may have thoughts and go, oh, shit, I've got some, like, really, really, like, uh, like dark prejudices going on in my head that I had no idea about until I'm creating this imaginary other and I've got the kind of shield up of going, oh, these are just aliens. This isn't a real story. So then you kind of let all your boundaries down and go, right, I'm just going to, I'm free to write exactly what I think. And it's only when you read it back, you go, fuck. What the hell was that? <laughs> I, I, and that's the thing. I mean, there was, a, I forgot, there was a, panel this year on, on you know in a convention somewhere and it talked about killable bodies all right um and killable bodies say in video game design you know are usually your zombies or the people that we feel it is morally okay to shoot these people dead without thinking about it all right but the people that we ascribe that killable body status to it or it still tells us something Right, so you can warp the features of your aliens to whatever you like. Make them as ugly as possible. You know, give them, I don't know, three eyes and a distorted face or no face at all. Like you know, like some like some of the xenomorphs are in aliens. But it's still, no matter what you do, it still comes down to these are other people. These are people who are not like me. I want to be able to kill them. Yeah. So I will make them into something that will not trigger that response of, oh, this is another human being, so you can't kill them. So to have a killable body, you have to you have to have enemies that are so distorted that you know you won't you, you won't you won't think too much. You, you, it won't trigger your conscience, basically. It's you know, so it won't trigger the idea that I am just killing a human being. That's the whole like Starship Troopers thing, right? Is that they're like fighting these these bugs, yeah. but you get, and when I first saw it, I was quite young and I didn't get that it was satire. But then you watch it again and they like tie up this like alien boss and uh, the psychic kind of reads its mind and they say, what's he thinking? And, and uh, what's yeah. it thinking? And he says, it's scared and everyone cheers. Uh, yeah. and, and actually watching it the second time, knowing that I was watching satire, I was like, Oh, that's fucking gross. And also watching it, yeah. knowing that it's satire, you watch it and go, because they claim that like this, like group of kind of like Mormon missionaries were attacked and you watch it again and go, those aren't missionaries. This is a military base. They're colonizing this planet. That's why there's yes. been an attack against them. Fuck. Oh, <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, and it's one of those things that <laughs> Starship Troopers is so, I don't know. It's so rich. It's it's so rich. 
you know, you could, you can write, you, you can write a book on Starship Troopers alone, you know, on on the reception of it and how it just went over the heads of some people. Yeah. Right. And how when you finally get it, it kind of explodes in your head. You know, it, it's so amazing. I, I, you know, <laughs> it's just so amazing. Um, but that that is the thing. And if you don't. If you don't have, if you have aliens without an alien perspective, in other words, if you're writing, if you're writing, if you're writing aliens as killable people, as killable characters, without having a real perspective as to why they exist and why, you know, why you have been, why you have been brought to conflict, then it's an inferior, to me, it's an inferior narrative. You have to, there has to be an understanding of why why are you fighting each other? Why is it that you've decided to kill each other? You know, there has to be a perspective. Otherwise, the only thing you're doing, you're just basically showing xenophobia. You're just killing people that are not like you. You're just saying, here are these aliens and they are evil, so we are killing them. End of story. But it's simplistic and it's a bit daft. Yeah, and I think even someone like Tolkien with his orcs, who are just supposed to be like grunts that it's... uh I've got nothing to them except that they're, it's fine to shoot arrows into them and chop their heads off. Like, he'll have yeah. these moments in his later books where I think even he, at some subconscious level, couldn't maintain that. And so we overhear orcs talking and yeah. they're war-weary. They're talking about when they're going to get to go home. And they seem yeah. like people. They seem like people. Yeah. And I don't think he intended that. I don't think he wanted them to be people, but even he, as soon as he like turns the camera on them, they just start acting like people. And you get these really disturbing kind of like leaks through the narrative of like heroes and stuff um, of like going, fuck, these are, these are people too. What's going to happen to them once Sauron's dead? Because war is, war is complicated. War is never that. It's never that simplistic thing of this is the evil person go and shoot them dead. It's never that. You know, it's never that. Even if training, even if the training of soldiers tries to do that, because of course, you it's very difficult to get one human being to kill another. In order to do that, you have to dehumanize the other person, and secondly, you have to program the person doing the shooting to not think of them as other individuals, because if they think of them as individuals, they will hesitate. And regardless of all of that, I mean. You, I'm sure you've heard of the um, statistic about shooting during the American Civil War that most of the guns shot missed. That a lot of it, a lot of the missing wasn't about skill. It was that people just felt unable to shoot other human beings. You know, that's it's more of that. I mean, yes, fine. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, and then in the end they did, but there was a lot of missing that wasn't due to a lack of shooting skill. There was a lot of missing that can only be attributed to people hesitating to shoot other human beings because we don't like to kill other human beings you know so in order to get that done you need to weave a narrative that they are less than human that they have done these things that they if you don't shoot them they're going to shoot you There's, you have to weave some kind of narrative that kills that part of humans that makes us hesitate can you talk a little bit about and this is kind of linked into this but it's also a bit different i just want to talk about I feel bad, like, in case... But your protagonist, I think when we start Rosewood, he's kind of, like, not... He's not totally... Totally likeable. Like, he's got... He 
done some bad. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to say in case you go, oh, no, I love him. But like, there's de- there's definitely kind of like this narrative of like somebody who's got some bad things in his past kind of coming face to face with some of those. And I wonder if you could just talk about like that kind of like moral ambiguity of having like an anti-hero, having a character who uh, doesn't start off you know, like being this total paragon of virtue, who's like a bit, a bit arrogant. Um, and how, and how, and what makes us want to follow that character through? All right. So here's the thing. I don't actually believe that there are people who are complete paragons. I believe, I believe that we all perform humanity in different ways, but I believe that human beings are, we're complex. We have both good and evil inside us. Um, with knowledge comes what could be good and evil. That's why in the Garden of Eden, the apple that was eaten wasn't an evil apple. It was the apple of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, human beings are complicated. What we do is we have a public-facing persona. The book is centered around a psychic, which means he can read people's thoughts and their emotions. One thing that had to be done, which I thought, is that the reader had to be able to read his thoughts and his emotions. Yeah. Because he has an unfair advantage on everybody else. He can read their minds. All right. So I felt it was important that we be able to read his mind and his thoughts. And he happened to be a person who gives in to his darker side a lot more than the other part of him now when you have a person that you consider to be a good person you know I'm putting good in scarecrows in scare quotes now such a person is a person who it's not that they don't have bad thoughts they do they're just people who don't give in to the bad thoughts so instead they say okay fine what should I do in this situation so in every you know in your every interaction with other people you decide what you want to do. You may not know you're deciding because the decision may be so fast, you know, the speed of thought, but you make a decision, okay, I'm going to do the right thing in this situation. I'm going to be selfish in this situation. I'm not going to be selfish here. I'm going to help this person. I'm not going to help this person. You make those decisions. We, and by we now I'm saying the reader, we know every thought of Paros. We know when he's being lecherous. We know when he's you know, trying to do something out of his own self-interest. We know when he's cowardly, right? I wanted, because he was a psychic, I wanted him to not appear sympathetic to the reader because the message, the real message there is that none of us would be sympathetic if we knew yeah. all of our thoughts. Now you're saying that, I'm like, fuck, actually, <laughs> I'm not sure that I'd want that written down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the trick is that what you're looking at, we're looking at layers. So the layer, we, the readers, are psychic. At least this was this was my intention. I don't know if readers will pick that up, but we, the readers, are psychic to Caro. We can read his thoughts and emotions. We can tell his intentions, and they don't seem good to us. But the reason they don't seem good to us is because we can pick all of them up. If we allowed him, if you read the book again, without paying any attention to what Caro thinks. 
as a character, he would be different. Yeah. You know, if you read it, if you, if you, if you do that experiment, like, okay, fine, I'm going to ignore everything that he's thinking. I'm just going to, I'm just going to go with what he's said and what he's done. What other people see. Yeah. You see, and, and, and that's the point, the point, you know, point I was trying to make by this character is not that I wanted to have an anti-hero because what the hell is an anti-hero anyway? No, what I wanted to do is to show that, look, none of us can ever be sympathetic if all of the thoughts of our mind can be known. None of us can be sympathetic. And and I think, like, and oh. and then there's a diff, and I guess, like, he's, although I don't, like, at least to begin with, like, sympathise with him, you certainly, whenever you spend that much time with a character, empathise with them. And you're certainly, like, in, I was certainly very invested in what, he was what was happening and what he was going through and what he was discovering. Like, you know, I'm, I, I, when he's in a conflict, I want him to, to be all right, but that's kind of because I want like, because he's driving the, the plot. Right. I just don't necessarily think that he's doing things for super virtuous reasons, but then that makes him, you know, I think like if character's super virtuous, I don't really feel like there's anything with them I can relate to because I'm just like, well, that's uh, you're you're amazing. Well done, well done for you. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> I mean, like, look, Carol is just a guy who doesn't make the right choices, right? But in terms of his thinking, right, he thinks like we think. It's yeah. just that he does. You know, he just chooses. What I'm trying to point out is that the thinking is not usually the problem. It's the choices that are the problem with human beings. It is the choices. And when you can read this close, and that's why the book had to be in first person, when you, when you can read this close of people's thoughts, it becomes you. And you recognize it. And the, re- the reason you're invested in Kara's future or destiny is because you recognize some of those thoughts as thoughts that you could have yourself. You may not have acted on them in the way he is, but you have had those thoughts. Right. And then you can say, yes, Carl's an asshole, which he is. But he's an asshole because he chooses to respond to certain types of thoughts, but not because he is having those thoughts, because we all have those thoughts. And that is really what drives the interest in people still following such a bad character all the way through to the end and still remembering him. And I still got people asking me about him, like, look, I really, you know, I found him a really strong character. I still, after reading the book, I was still thinking about this guy and what he was doing and everything. Largely because he thinks thoughts that we think, you know, and some part of you in your mind is like, yeah, but for the grace of God, there goes I. Yeah. You know, if you have that like level of, it's very convenient for me. I don't have that level of power to uh, abuse because then I never I then I then I never have actually my virtue tested I can just go oh oh, I wouldn't do that well Tim you're not gonna have the opportunity to like peek into other people's minds so you won't have to yeah exactly I mean I don't you know for book two and book three for the rest of the trilogy I don't I don't go that I don't go into it's not first person for example I don't the other the other two books are not first well they're not strictly first person the structure is a bit different but the point is um that's not what happens in the subsequent books but for this book to introduce the world and this particular character i had to do that for the rest of the books he's not he's not the star of the other books there you know um but 
he was he is he is our host. He's the one who introduced us to this world. Can can you um I, I just wondered because uh, I realise uh, we're gonna you know before we finish I'd really just like to ask you um and this is something that actually un, unfairly I, I tend to ask authors who are writing stuff with some kind of genre elements um in a way I don't actually ask literary fiction authors and I should do more but um how do you see the kind of like science fiction and fantasy scene? Uh, at the moment like where do you see uh, how what do you think the state of it's uh uh like at the moment and where do you see it going um okay so we've got i see it i see it as really split into two large groups one but and it's you know whether how the split is divided in terms of percentage i don't know but one group is definitely still writing the traditional science fiction and fantasy. So you've still got people writing your basic space exploration stories, your basic militaristic sci-fi. You've got your basic fantasy quests, whether it be grimdark or whatever. When you say you've basic, writing... are you using basic in the neutral uh uh, version of just simple or are you using basic in the uh, pe- pejorative colloquial term? By basic I mean, it's not, I, I don't mean pejorative at all, I mean I mean that I mean that in the, in, the, in the true sense of the word generic, in other words this genre has certain tropes, there's a certain you know, there's a certain um, there's a certain set of tropes that make you something right, there is you know, it's what is part of the the ontological integrity of, say, fantasy. Mm. There's a particular set of characters who have a particular task to complete. They may or may not succeed in completing that task. On the way, they may or may not be perpetrators or victims of a particular, particularly brutal form of violence, which might drop a person into grimdark territory or not. Um, but what I'm saying is, they have certain recognizable, I don't know, semiotics, like, you know, that will tell you what you're looking at, right? As opposed to what is beginning, you know, the second the second group are the newly emerging, um, the newly emerging types of fantasy that are not necessarily tied up to medieval Europe, right? You know, books like The Poppy War, for example, who draw... You know who draw their their superstructure from different points in history, and who draw their narrative tradition. You know, um, more and more, what's going to happen, I think, is that science fiction and fantasy is going to become what it was always meant to be—a whole mess of completely different, fantastical types of narrative which I think is great. It started, you're going to see, you know, books like, you know, so books like Ancillary Justice that change your view of what like a spaceship is or can be. You know, books like that, you know, you're going to get things fracturing into so many different kinds of things like every month 
it's going to be like a feeding frenzy for fans because you have no idea what kind of stories you're going to get. Huh. And these will, you know, they're going to coexist alongside, you know, alongside what I've just called the generic ones so that, you know, if you're a fan of the generic type, then fine, go for that. No problem. You know, fan of your basic fantasy, your basic quest fantasy, then fine, you're going to have that. But if you want, if you want to roll the dice, you'll have that as well. And that can only be a good thing. You know, that can only be a good thing. I mean, there is just so much now. I mean, there's, you know, there's Mecha Samurai Empire, there's Nomon, there's, there's just so many different kinds of books out there that are not, you know, not what we, you know, what we could predict anymore, it, which it, is great. Yeah, it is. I think, I think it's been a real shame of science fiction and fantasy to, like, often when I'm talking to maybe literary authors and I find myself falling into a kind of, like, uh, classically defensive posture about the why science fiction and fantasy are actually uh, very important uh, cultural projects, uh, I'm sort of end up sort of like talking about how we've got all this imagination and, and the purpose of language, you know, part of the joy of language is being able to describe things that never happened to go around the campfire. Yeah. And instead of just explaining, hey, this is like where you can uh, go and watch out on this trail because the log over the old stream is rotten and if you walk across and someone can imagine that right but then you can just like and then one day someone realizes you can lie and say be careful because the log over the old stream is um is is guarded yeah when your foot foot breaks through it's actually trying to swallow you yeah exactly and and i and i managed to get away because i'm brave and everyone's like wow and you're like "Oh, oh this is amazing but then actually looking at what fantasy and science fiction has often produced or what the core of it has produced and actually those things having their own kind of being trapped by their own kind of orthodoxy. So I think it is exciting yes. that these and I think like you're right, these innovation can happen without actually in any way disturbing the even tenor of of the kind of like mainstream, more conservative versions of it. Um, but I understand why that's scary as well, because, God, we don't know what we're going to get. Right? That's like, whoa. It is scary. But that's that's good. Because some of it will fail and some of it won't. Um, and when it comes to creativity, in any field at all, when it comes to creativity, all right, if you allow yourself to become stereotyped and hidebound, then you will die. Because human beings are evolving. Our needs are evolving. All right? So if you, you cannot be static, you have to continue to understand what humans need now and who's going to tell the stories for them. So, I could, yes, I could write a story about watching my fingernail grow for six weeks. All right? I could write a story about that. Um, I can write 200 pages on watching my fingernail grow and it will sell maybe 200 copies and I'll feel good about myself because, yes, I have written something plotless huh. that very few people understand um, and very few people like. You know, but those who understand it are as smart as me, and yay, yes, and that can validate me, which is fine. And I can read that, but I can also read, you know, Peter Hamilton, because you know I want to read his expansive space operas because those things expl- they make my brain expand. Um, it's it isn't pie. There is room for everybody. There's a room for every kind of narrative. So. While new things are scary because as human beings, we're designed to be scared at new things so that we can evaluate them for threats and decide is it a threat or not. 
it does, you know, really everything should be welcomed. Like, there is a there's a comic book series called Monstrous. I don't know if you're aware of it. No, I haven't read it. No. Okay, but it's just so just so fantastic. All right, but it's not like you know graphic the other graphic novels out there. The reason I mean, and it's winning accolades and all that, but it's not because it's winning accolades that it's it's amazing. It's not like anything else out there. It came not like anything else, right? And it's got a completely unsympathetic lead character, right? Who, I must tell you, does not give a shit about your feelings or hmm. how you view her, right? Is relentless and just does not care, right? But you can't look away from her. You know, and if you read Graphic Nose, I will really recommend that you go and read Monstrous. And you've got Monstrous and you've also got Saga, Right, um, which again is not like anything else on the market. I've read, so, I, I've read, I've read the after sort of various friends said I had to read Saga. I've read the first volume of that. Um. Yeah, and and so you can you when you read a thing like Saga, you know that okay, they're not writing anything like anything else. They're not writing a story like anything else that's on the market. All right, they're just doing their own thing, and it is that freedom. It's like it's like reading Michael Sisko. Do you know Michael Sisko's work? I don't know. Michael Sisko is not for everybody, okay? But he is the most amazing writer. He's, he's one of my favorite writers. Um, and his work is not really that commercial because I suppose he doesn't really care enough about the audience. I don't know. Maybe he does. I don't know. But reading it, you get the sense of a person who's like, I'm going to write my own thing. You will like it or you will not like it. Hmm. That's your business. Right. So what you find is that the people who really like Michael Sisko are willing to go to war for him, right? <laughs> and then there are other people who, one, may have never heard of him, and two, if they start reading, they're like, huh, what is this, huh? I mean, he wrote, there's a book of his called Animal Money, and it is just batshit crazy, man, but I really love it, right? It's completely batshit. Um, but, you know, the use of language, the imagination, I've not seen anybody that imaginative. But the problem, and this is the reason I'm bringing this up, the problem with imagination is this, or the problem with being innovative is this. You can actually be too innovative for the market. There, ha there is a sweet spot of innovation. So in some ways, you have to be a bit like everybody else in some way, but then bring in some of the newness. I don't know what the percentage is, but there is a percentage of innovation that becomes fresh and new and exciting for the audience. But when you cross... A particular threshold it becomes too much that it alienates the audience so the new stuff the new fantasy the new science fiction it will usually start off with people who are innovative but recognizable before it shifts into completely different territory i mean you will get things like jade city i don't know if you've read jade city i, I haven't but, yet no fondly yes you know which is really exciting writing Okay, there's there's just there's so much out there that is new. There's just so much. You know, there's so much that is new and you have you know it, it you know, the fact that it is frightening is good. It is a good thing because it means that people are being shifted from their previous positions. I think you're I think you're right, and and, that, and that's like Ursula Le Guin talks about about that a little bit in her book of essays, uh The Language of the Night, where she says that like Elfland and Fantasyland have become 
this kind of like Yosemite National Park where there's like all there's all these trailers have pulled up and people are getting out barbecues and big like camper vans with like air conditioned and it's not the wilderness yeah. anymore and fantasy and science fiction should be pl- places where there's bits that aren't on the maps and bits where you get eaten by bears and that's where yes. like the exciting stuff's going to happen exactly yes you know, I, I mean, I can't. I, that that is not a person I can ever disagree with. <laughs> but, but that happens to be my position as well. There's no point. Alan Moore even said it. I mean, there's a book. Have you ever read a book called The Vore? No, but I've seen, I've seen, I've seen it about a lot now. Okay. So I was one of the early adopters of The Vore. You know, yeah. you know, it's it's actually a really good. It's a really good, imaginative, completely crazy book. But um, the preface for the first edition was written by Alan Moore and one of the things he said was that look, the whole point of writing fantastical type fiction is it has to be something that you will open and you have no idea where you're going, right? it has to be new it has to be stuff that look he was like, what's the point of writing fantasy if it's predictable hmm. that you, you, I'm sorry but you know, once you get to the, to the point where you have tropes then genre is dying. If that's the if that's the, if you if you can start reading something and in the first I don't know one quarter you can tell where it's going and then by the time you finish it's gone where you thought it was going. Then we're not doing our job as writers of fantasy and science fiction. You know we should be should be showing people what the imagination can do. We should be showing them new things. And if we're not showing them new things, then what are we doing? What's the point? You know, I certainly know that I want to read things that are not that I haven't read before. I don't want to read the same old story. Now, not to say that there's anything wrong with reading the same old story. I mean, I get people who like because it's comforting to read the same thing. So it's comforting to be able to pick up a book and say, "Okay, I know what's going to happen here, and these are the things that I like." You know, so and there's a certain type of reader who likes that kind of thing. Where yes, I you know they want to read the things they they like. You know, but that's not me. Like I said earlier, I, I, you know, I get bored easily, so I need, I need new things. You know, I need, I need new, I need new vistas. You know, I don't want to go to Mordor anymore. I've been there. That's ah, uh, I Tully, thank you so much for chatting today. I feel like, uh, I feel, I feel like I've just, uh, just been in, injected with like a hundred cc's of, uh pure ass kicking basically to get up and 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 innovate and and fuck shit up and um make readers make readers just be reading going i don't fucking know where i am anymore like it's exciting right we've got to have them go shit okay if that's happened yeah and you want people to like okay i'm late for work but i gotta read the next chapter (laughs) i have no idea what's going on absolutely and all those recommendations you've done, I will put in the uh, links in the show notes so people who want to go and check them out and uh, get copies from themselves certainly can. But most importantly, um, I will put uh, links to uh, Rosewater in the uh, show notes and on my website. So if you've enjoyed the chat today and you want to um, get some of that uh, good creeping weirdness uh, in your reading life, then you will be able to too. But um, 
thank you very, very much for uh, giving up your time to be on the show today. I really appreciate it. Not a problem at all. I'm glad to be here. And I, I listen to the rest of them. And, you know, people, you should go and listen to the rest of the podcast because they're great. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And everyone listening, do that this week. And also, uh, I hope that you have uh, an exciting, the brave and uh, genre limitations busting week of writing. <laughs>